This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 24. And the last time we looked at, in chapter 23, David's last words, really what was his legacy, and we talked about what would our legacy be. Do you ever think about that? Stop for a moment and think, at the, at, you know, if our life was to end today, what would we leave behind? What did people know us as? What was the most important thing to us? So that's uh, just sometimes we ask ourselves questions that kind of stop us in our tracks and makes us think. Tonight we're going to look at David's, King David's national sin that led to a national plague, and I'm going to parallel First Chronicles because it also is a parallel scripture to what we're going to cover in 2 Samuel 24. And we're going to look at this cycle of sin, and all sin has consequences, no matter how big, no matter how small. Repentance, forgiveness, and restoration in that order. You know, a lot of people throw around the word forgiveness, forgiveness, but remember, Jesus was very explicit in Luke 17. If your brother repents, forgive him, up to 70 times 7. And remember, without repentance, there's, you're putting something on a poor foundation. So the foundation has to be right. There's got to be repentance. And it's the same thing with us and God. We can't just go through life sinning willfully and just ignoring it and thinking we're going to have this great relationship with the Lord. Repentance is important. So we'll check this out. Starting in verse 1, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, first four verses. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go number or take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, this is interesting, we come back to this, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundredfold more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord... Speaking of David, little L, the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the captains, against the captains of the army. So Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. So we see, I'm going to look at three points in these first four verses because it really sets the stage and the tone of what we're going to study tonight. Number one, God was angry with Israel again, it says. Now, we're not told exactly what it was for this time, but sin must be dealt with. Now, God had been angry with Israel before, right? Israel had to set the example of God's chosen people. And before, he had to punish them because of needless bloodshed. Some believe that this, for this particular issue, that it was Israel's really rebellion against the Davidic dynasty when they, a lot of them followed their lot or threw in with Absalom, the rebellious son. God hates rebellion. Nobody really knows. We can only speculate. But we do know that God is righteous. God is fair. And he had a reason why he was upset with Israel. The second thing we see in verse 1 is that it says he, it's capitalized by the Bible translators. Okay, he or God moved David to number the people. However, if we look at the parallel scripture in 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says Satan moved David. So what gives? See, I love to do that. You know, people say, oh, you know, if you don't study the Bible in its context, you can get caught up. And the naysayers like to point out what they consider discrepancies. It's very simple. 
Satan probably originated this thought in David. It was not a good thought. We know God doesn't move people to sin. And it's quite possible that we've seen this in the past with David, and we know in our own lives that God tries to dissuade, not persuade, but dissuade us to sin. However, David in his free will might have chosen not to relent, so God allowed it to be set in motion. Remember when Satan came before God and spoke about Job? Remember he had to ask permission. Satan doesn't just go around and mess with us without getting you know, boundaries in what he can do and what he can't do. Even 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that in every sin, God makes a way out. We don't have to sin if we don't want to. Right? He doesn't allow the sin to be so great that we can't resist it. This can be a scary place. The place where we really want to do something and God eventually allows it. Right? I mean, how many times have we seen that in the scripture? A person wants to do something and God talks them out of it, tries to. And they do it anyway. And I'll tell you that, in my life, when I'm really headstrong about something, and God's trying to dissuade me, and I really want to do it, when I went out, because of my free will, it's a sad day. It's a sad day when God allows us to do something instead of following what his wisdom should dictate. Third thing we see is, the question is, what's the big deal about numbering the people? Was it illegal or immoral to take a census? No. You know, any kingdom has to know how many people there are for certain things, but it's deeper than that. In Hebrew, in the NIV, actually, in some other versions, it says that David, the other, another translation could be that it was to determine troop strength. Ah, now we're getting into a different category. It's not just how many people there are, how many resources, how do we divide up the counties. It has nothing to do with that. This had to do with wanting to know the strength of the military. And in verse 9, we'll also see that this clears it up. Now, there's a problem with that. So we ask the question, okay, Pastor Joe, it's not just a census. Now it's a census or a numbering of the fighting men. And we're going to get to that. What's the big deal about that? The big deal is the reason. Again, this wasn't like the United States is how many people do we have in the military? How much housing do we have for them? How much food are we spending for them? This is different. He was looking at, his, his heart motives were wrong. Right? So number one, we look at pride. How, does, how is our national strength? Verse two, David says that I may know. There's no spiritual reasoning in this. David basically says to Joab that I may know. I want to know how many people we have in the military. Now remember Nebuchadnezzar? Remember he was lifted up with pride and said, look at my Babylon that I made. And God immediately humbled him, and he ate grass like an animal for a certain period of time. So the first thing we look at, pride. Pride leads to, two, reliance on something other than God. In this instance, it was national strength. Here's the truth, folks. (laughs) I think we've seen enough battles in here that we realize that it wasn't Israel that would win the battle. As a matter of fact, God would often allow Israel to be hamstrung in their abilities, and then he would say, now I'm going to give you the victory. And what did God say? The reason I'm going to give you the victory is because if you did it through your own means, you would leave me out of it. So I'm going to make it so amazing that you guys could be losing and you're going to still win and you're going to give me glory. This is what God wants and he deserves it. The third thing we look at, we go from pride to reliance on something other than God in the third step here. Now think about our own lives. We can do this too. We go to autonomy, right? 
Autonomy. Hey, God, I got it from here. Jesus, take the wheel. Okay, Jesus, give me the wheel back. Let's switch seats again. Let me get back into the driver's seat. So we move to autonomy. I don't need you anymore, God. Now, remember, this was, this was, David was leading God's chosen people. So God had to be at the wheel. He had to be at the helm. Because if they weren't a light anymore to the surrounding nations, who would carry his message? And who ultimately would the Messiah come from? Fourth thing we look at is, David, you see a change in behavior because of taking God for granted. We covered that on Sunday. Reason, motives. Remember, we can do something so innocuous, so harmless, but if our heart motives are wrong, it becomes a problem. Now, Warren Wiersbe believes, and and again, people, this is conjecture here. Why did David do what he did? Well, Warren Wiersbe believes that it's quite possible that David tried to shore up the military because his son was eventually going to take over the military and he didn't have any experience. I find that very ironic because David started out with no experience. If this is the case, and we don't know that this is the case. Remember, David started out as a shepherd boy. And God elevated David because his faith was far greater than he... He didn't have experience. All he had was his faith and his belief in God. And for that reason, God catapulted him to lead a nation. Again, David goes back, in a sense, to his worldly understanding. We covered this on Sunday as well. You know, it it had to be apparent at some point, maybe after the repentance, that as long as Solomon had great faith, like he started... God would take care of the experience and the other issues. Again, it's a conjecture. We're not sure. You know, in, in ministry, this can happen too. You know, I mean, I've seen it, and, and it's been spoken about in Calvary circles, about pastors numbering their people uh, and almost saying, you know, this magic number that Calvary's get to is like a 1,000, or you go to two or three services, and now you're, at, you're in the big time. Says who? There could be a lot of chaff in that church. Right? But people get caught up in numbering, numbering, what's the strength, what's the size, and not just for mere logistics, but because of pride reasons. We actually supported a missionary, self-styled missionary, many years ago, who the numbers were always astounding, and they weren't even mathematically possible. But he would always just talk about these incredible numbers, and it, it started to, we started to realize that over time it wasn't true, and we stopped supporting him, you know? It's not necessary. If God is doing a good work and five people come out or two people or one person, think about how many one people started revivals through the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how big the church is or how big your ministry is or how much money you're raking in. It doesn't matter. So, listen, it's nice to talk about David, but we also have to fast forward to today in 2014, talk about issues that plague us when it comes to numbering and looking at strength when we should be looking at God and having faith in him, no matter who he puts in front of us. Even though serving under David, Joab and the captains of the army knew this was a bad idea, and guess what? Joab, was he known to be a moral guy? No. Joab was known to be a very a man of the flesh, get-her-done type of guy, but, but a man of the flesh. And Joab is saying, uh, King, I don't think this is a good idea. That's just my impression. I don't know how he sounded. But the fact that David sees Joab is uncomfortable with this situation should have given him a little check. Maybe this isn't a good idea. Because Joab was very quick to take off somebody's head. So if Joab is saying it's not a, you know, think about his words to David. Listen, may may your kingdom grow a hundredfold and my Lord, King, may you see it. But 
why do you want to do this thing? I caution you, king. Well, in those days, the king was supreme, and, and his, his will won out. You know, we have to be careful when we lead because people are watching. And everything that we do. You know, we've, we've had opportunities even as a, as a church to cut corners in certain areas. And I'm like, you know what, let's just, just do it the right way. You know, it's, I don't, let's just do it so however it goes down, we're doing it the right way. And it's a witness not only to people in the church, but people in the town. I mean, that's important as well. And I could think of many examples where that happened and that we were in good favor with the township. It might cost us more money. It might have cost us more resources or time, but it's the right thing to do. People are watching. Verse 5. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aror, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hachi, and they came to Danjaan and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. You can see this if you have a study Bible in, in the back. There's a, you'll see a geographical kind of a map, and it'll show you the different places that Joab and all the captains are going through in this nine-plus months to start to count troop, troop strength, who can, who can go into the military, who can be conscripted, who can fight, who's, who's known to fight, right? And then they went out to the south, Judah, as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all of the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. In 1 Chronicles 21.6, and this is great how Chronicles fills in some of the gaps where we may read this and say, oh, there's something missing. Okay, let's go to Chronicles, and it'll fill in what you think might be missing. So 1 Chronicles 21.6, it says, quote, Joab did not count Levi and Benjamin because the king's word was abominable to him. He actually disobeyed David. You know, I mean, remember Balaam's donkey? He really wanted to do this thing and get the money from Balak. And the, it took a, a donkey to, to stop Balaam from doing something incredibly stupid. And, uh, you know, he ends up crushing his foot and, and uh, the donkey ends up talking to Balaam. Imagine a donkey, you know, your cat or your dog saying, you idiot, what are you doing? You know, God, well, dogs, and you talk back to it and you don't even realize you're so enraged. And this is what happened with Balaam. But, you know, Joab was, again, not a moral guy and, and he just, he says, I can't even do this anymore. So there's a, an incomplete census, really. The numbers are not complete. As a matter of fact, 1 Chronicles 27, 24 confirms that the census was incomplete. So we know it's a little over a million, but we're not really sure how much. Verse 10. And David's heart condemned him after, it, after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity or the sin of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David's convicted, takes a little over, you know, it does appear from the text that it took several months, maybe nine plus months for David to realize that what he did was wrong. And we might think that that's a long time, but there's some people that never come to repentance. You know, they're doing something that's really bad, it's really out of God's will, and they just never come to the fact or the possibility they could be wrong in that particular situation. 
So at least David eventually, he realized it. And repentance from sin is a good place to be. It's a good place to frequent. And after the consequences, after that repentance, will come forgiveness and restoration. And that's beautiful. So we're going to see in this, it gets gets pretty harsh here. We're going to see that the sin was bad, the consequences were awful, but the restoration was incredible. And the restoration was so great that it actually affects us today. How could that be, Pastor Joe? Well, give me some time. I'll, I'll do it for you here. <laughs> Verse 11. Now, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, seven, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Amen to that. So Gad is what I would call the on-call prophet. (laughs) You know, David's repentant he's he's upset um might have been an emotional experience and god dispatches gad go talk to david tell him what the consequences of sin are going to be so he gets three choices to pick one and you might ask yourself why did david receive choices well it's quite possible that david's sin was so definitive he chose this sin that god gave him this free choice as an object lesson you know, you were so willing to, to, to be headstrong and do this thing against all good counsel, so now do this thing and pick which judgment will fall upon you and the people. And again, it's a great object lesson on free will. You know, Romans 7 came up in the Berean room, and it came up Sunday, and I might as well refer to it today with the Apostle Paul uh, talking about desiring to do the things of God and really messing up. You know, to have this free will issue that a lot of times we draw from our flesh when we make decisions, and we shouldn't. In our heart of hearts, we really want to please God, but sometimes we go out of bounds, and because of our free will, we make fleshly choices. And David did that. So these, these uh, choices seem like they get progressively shorter in duration, but greater in, in intensity. Now, understand this also about these three choices that in Deuteronomy 28, God is a fair God. God said all the way back in Deuteronomy to the nation, if you walk in disobedience, you know, you've got to set an example. If you walk in disobedience, these things will come upon you. Famine, military defeat, and plague. God was very clear. Those blessings that I had for you are not for use while you're engaging and continuing in willful sin. You know, the Bible is very clear. These concepts still haven't changed. Even as believers, you know, when we repent and we give it to God, there's a new freshness that opens up in our relationship with the Lord. And I found it in my own life. When I just harbor this, this sin and I'm not repenting, and I don't think it's a big deal, there's just like um, this, this, this chasm, this um, you know, static between, between me and the Lord. And you know, this can happen in, in our own lives as well. There's a Psalm 66, 18 the Lord will not hear if I'm in persistent sin. So it's all throughout the scripture. And that's why God gives us things like repentance, so we can turn 
from this crazy direction that we're going in our flesh and turn back to God. That's where he wants us. So David has an interesting response. He says, basically, I'd rather fall into God's hands than fall into the hands of man. All I can say is, amen. (laughs) I mean, God is perfect, and people can be very judgmental, and people can be very mean in their judgment, and they can be cold and cruel. And I tell you what, I've even seen it in the church. It's not a pretty thing. So I've got to tell you, if, if I'm going to be judged, I'd rather be judged by God too. I would, I would say the same thing that David said. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Now just because somebody says something in the scripture doesn't mean that it's theologically accurate. And I'll talk to and explain what that is. God is a fair God. David is no doubt overcome by emotion. He sees the people falling in judgment, and he's, he's like, they're, they're completely innocent. I'm just going to throw out a conjecture here. So you say, how, how do I rectify these two things? Well, there is judgment for sin. The other thing is, if God had an issue with Israel specifically, and he's done this before, is it quite possible that he, that he eliminated many of the people that were rebellious and tearing the nation apart. Now, that's just my conjecture. You know, there's going to be times where we read things in the Scripture and we're a little confused. We don't really understand. We have to fall back on the foundational understanding that God is a fair God. Okay? And we've read plenty of times in the Scripture where you know, people who did these things eventually had to come into them. You know, if they continue in that sin. So we don't know who these people were. David sees it. He's overcome with emotion. And he says, Lord, let it fall on me. So the Lord sends this plague, and it's pretty sad. There is a part, actually, it says the angel of the Lord. This could have been just some angel that the Lord dispatched, this mighty angel, to do this, to run this this plague through its course. Um, There are a few instances, and don't hold me to this because I'm not saying I... 100% 100% believe this, but there are instances in the scripture. Remember the angel, uh, this malach in the Hebrew, malach, malach, and it means literally messenger. There are times that that Hebrew word is referred to these angelic beings with wings and, you know, pretty mighty beings. And they're that, th- those messengers of God, because that's what angels do. People ascribe uh, the almost deity to angels, when the truth is they're just doing what God tells them to do. Angels are not to be worshipped. They're not godlike. They're just one of God's created beings, sort of like we are. You, know, I see, you ever see people that just almost pray to angels and worship of angels? And even the scripture, the Apostle Paul speaks about that. Don't do that. That's not good. Okay. There are few times in the scripture that the angel of the Lord, maybe you could say capital A, was the messenger of, of, of the Lord or the self-existent one, and it's a form of the pre-existent Christ. I'm not married to that. I'm just saying that that's a possibility. Now, you wonder why in the New Testament 
that Mary and Joseph and others were afraid when an, an angel you know, appeared to them. Because if, you, if they knew their Old Testament, they knew that oftentimes if an angel appeared to you, uh, judgment was coming. So not all the time. And let's also not confuse angel as an order of beings with angel as a messenger. Sometimes people were called angel, meaning if he specifically sent them to do something. And then the third possibility, or that's not a possibility here, but the other thing is the angel of the Lord being the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is not an angel as far as a created being, but he had to, at times the Lord sent him not only to the earth to be, take the form of a man, but before that to do certain things and make certain appearances. So uh, sometimes it's hard to understand the Hebrew, but we have to also take it into context. Now, the angel, this, this destroying angel or this messenger, stopped at Jerusalem, probably as Joab stopped at Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, we see that in First Chronicles 21. And in verse 17, again, David can't, can't take watching the people fall anymore, and he cries out to God, and he asked that he would take it upon himself. Now, to me, that's real leadership. Today, we see leaders that use others. Unfortunately, we see this a lot in the political realm for those that are not submitted to God. Some politicians are. A lot are not. So what do, you, what do we do in leadership? Sometimes in lead, And we see that in our own country, and sometimes we even see it in ministry, where leadership uses the people below them. They get what they can get, and they, that's just what they think they're royalty. However, David... David made himself vulnerable to those he served. And the idea of a shepherd boy, the whole idea of what made David great, wanting to tend to not only the sheep, literally, but then the people, loving the people, his shepherd's heart comes back to him. That's what I believe. Now, 1 Chronicles 21.16, I'm just going to, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it. This is very significant as well. Again, parallel scripture. It says that the elders... And David were in sackcloth and fell on their faces during this difficult time. Again, another clue, if the elders of Israel are also in sackcloth, a picture of repentance that goes all the way back to verse 1, God was again against Israel because of the sins that they had committed. Again, we were not told explicitly what it is in this instance. But the elders and David, both in sackcloth, sackcloth, the elders are representing the people. So there's another indicator, another clue that this was a nation that needed to repent, not just the king. Okay, verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of God, went up as the Lord commanded. So God told David, where the, or where the angel stopped, the messenger stopped, uh, build an altar, you know, and, and probably at, at some point do sacrifices. This is significant because in Second Chronicles 3.1, again, parallel account, this was the place where Solomon eventually built a temple and offered sacrifices. So you see this, this repeating of, of themes. So David builds, a, you know, builds an altar. We know that Solomon built a temple on that site. We know if we go back to Genesis, it appears that Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac on that site. And what else, do we, what else do we know? That this is probably where the Lord Jesus Christ eventually was crucified. Pretty impressive, isn't it? And, and I'm going to go into this theme. I'm going to go into this theme at the end. 
Monuments in the Bible are very significant and a lot more significant than how we build monuments, especially in this country. You know, it's usually to remember something and really, where do we get the monument idea from the scripture? You know, take these rocks and put them here and, you know, put this here and, and make sure the saying goes, you know, every time somebody walks by that monument. Because unfortunately, as people, we forget the power of God. We forget that God, and I talked about this on Sunday. God did something here. Build a monument. Let people know that something happened here. And also God staved off judgment here. So whether God does something that we perceive as positive or negative, God still did something here and we need to remember that. And brothers and sisters, in our lives, if we mature as believers, our lives should be a monument to God. Right? Somebody gets to know us. Maybe they're all heathen at work and you're the only Christian. And maybe you don't partake in the things that they partake of. And maybe you just do it politely. You're not sanctimonious or you don't look down on them. You just, this is how I choose to live. And one day somebody comes to you with a real problem that they can't tell all the other people that they went out drinking with these last several months because they know it'll get around the workplace. But you're different, right? Your life is a monument. People see you and they know something's different. And in hard times, they feel inspired or moved to talk to you because you are that monument. So let's just not look at monuments as rocks or pillars or altars. Our lives should be a monument and a testimony to God. doesn't mean we do everything perfect, but it means that we should be different and our lives should be different than the world is. Verse 20, Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming towards him. So Aruna went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. This is significant. Well, David comes and you know he's probably got some dignitaries. Everybody knew who David was and Aruna bows down to him, my lord the king, remember little L, it's a sign of respect. Whatever you want, David, I'll give it to you, it's yours, you can have it for free. But David wouldn't do that. Again, how many leaders would take advantage of this? How many leaders would say, yeah, just give it to me, I'm the king. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to acquisition it, it's mine, I'm, I'm taking it. David didn't do that. He said, I will not offer anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. And believers today, we need to do the same thing. See, this is the beauty about the scripture. Does that mean we need to go out and buy a threshing floor? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that do we offer things to the Lord you know, that doesn't cost us anything? That's of our excess. I don't care what it is. Time, money, our heart, how we deal with people. You know, there's, there's principles in the scripture about giving something up. Sometimes we have to look over our lives 10, 15 years as a believer. Have I given anything up to serve the Lord? And it doesn't mean it has to be staged or phony, oh, I'll give this up to God. But 
you know, we're going to cover this again in two Sundays when Jesus speaks about the cost of discipleship. What does walking with the Lord cost us? It should cost us something of our time, maybe finances, maybe friendships, maybe things that God wants us to give up, right? I actually have to, poor Christine's going to get upset with me. I'm probably going to change my discipleship handout for the 10th time. <laughs> I keep updating it. That one thing, I had 10 points there. This, is, this keeps coming up. So I have to put another point that we should be giving something up. We should be sacrificing something that costs us something. Remember, in the Old Testament, God said, don't give me your, your gimp goats. Don't give me your, you know, um, bald sheep. You know, if you're going to sacrifice something, give me your best. God would not accept something that people were just getting rid of. Oh, I'll sacrifice this to the Lord. You know, in our lives, we should be giving God our best, not our leftovers. Right? So, verse 25, last verse. And David built... There an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now in 1 Chronicles 21-26, it says that God sent fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. You can call it out. Where else have you seen that? Right, Elijah. So this, this is going to come sometime later. People, when they hear fire from heaven and consuming the sacrifice, they immediately think of Elijah, but David came first. <laughs> and this is, this is tucked deep into the historical books in the Old Testament. So that means God accepted the sacrifice. A few things that we need to look at. Number one is in leadership, there are awesome responsibilities. We see that all over the scripture. That's the first point, one of three. The second one is that some may not, some may hear this tonight and, and it doesn't sit well, the, the cost, the judgment that God meted out on the land. But remember, God had an issue with Israel as a nation. So if I stopped at leadership, probably a lot of people would be happy. Yes, leadership, you're held to a higher standard. Don't forget that God's people also needed to set an example. Why was God angry with Israel? Because they miss characterized his name they misrepresented who he was and there was a lot more of them than there was of david so the the judgment had to continue you know christians today can be finger pointers hey listen i'm busy this is the united states it's new jersey it's 2014 let the leadership team do everything in the church finger pointers sitting back armchair warriors you know criticizing pointing out but the, here's the bottom line every christian bears the name of god we can't say it's just for the pastor or the elders or their wives. We all bear the Lord's name, brothers and sisters. So wherever we go, we bear his name. And that's something to consider. That's the second point. The third point is that restoration is always beautiful. Let's look at what happens here. Number one, David sinned with Bathsheba. After that baby perished, and I believe went right to heaven, the second child born after David married Bathsheba was Solomon. Solomon, which means peace. He's the one who takes over and enlarges Israel's borders. Now, he messes up later in life, but there's a beautiful thing that happens. He's able to build a temple, right? So, so you see this restoration, and restoration is gorgeous. The second thing is, again, where the plague stopped is where David bought and built an altar and sacrificed to the Lord. It's the place where Abraham offered Isaac. It's the place where Solomon built a temple to offer sacrifices. And it's the place where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. 
Because the Bible tells us that blood is the only atonement for sin. We see that in Leviticus 17. This is a foretelling of Jesus Christ. So this is the grace in this story. Out of some horrible sin and some national tragedy, not only with David, but with the Israelites. And God had to bring judgment. Look what happened in the repentance and the restoration. We get blessed. Because this, this site, which probably looked like nothing, what was a, a threshing floor? Let me take my stuff, let me take my weed and you know, beat it and throw it in the air and let the chaff blow off. And that was it. It was an ignominious place. It had no glory. It had no beauty. It just was a place to thresh wheat. And what did God do? We we learned some incredible things through this one sight over and over and over again. And then the Lord Jesus Christ is sacrificed for my sins. And I'm a Gentile. I don't, I actually, I don't, I don't think I have any Jewish in me. I'm blessed because what happened here affects me. I wasn't in the fold of the Jews. And I'm being blessed today because of this restoration. And I'll leave you with this. Here's the beauty. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. And that was set from this stage. Let's pray.